Hi, this is Steve Martin, not the actor, not the PR guy, the agent from APA. I'll be on Dan Steinberg's perpendicular, fantastic, psychedelic Promoter 101 podcast from South by Southwest, Thursday, March 16th. I'm Dan Steinberg, but you and you alone can call me Steiny. And this is Promoter 101. Truly, I promise it really is. Why would I lie? Calm down, Dan. I think they believe you. I'm Luke Pierce. Let's get this started with the news of the week. On Friday, Live Nation announced it would take a majority stake in Bottle Rock, the fourth-year festival in Napa, California. I've got to give a lot of praise to the team at Latitude 38. That's Dave Graham, Justin Dragu, and Jason Scoggins. If you're not familiar with the checkered history of Bottle Rock, Latitude 38 bought Bottle Rock from its founders after a financially disastrous start to the festival in its first year in 2012. It owed more than $2.5 million to various creditors, including the local San Fran IATSE union, which made it the front page of the San Fran Chronicle the Monday after the event. Since Latitude 38 took it over, the team has really figured out a way to make this event world-class. I was there the first year in 2013. I've been again in 2015 and 2016, most recently with our friends Jamie Loeb and Greg Schmalley. The experience was awesome. You can tell that Graham and Dragu and Scoggins don't come entirely from the music business, and they've been figuring out as they go along, but it's become a world-class event, and I'm definitely planning on being there again in 2017. And if you're ever in Napa, you should also check out Justin Dragu's other venture. He's the president of Jeff Gargiulo's Gargiulo Vineyards. You should grab yourself some G major at the Tasty Room on Oakville Crossroad. Some news we missed last week. Deadline Hollywood reported the godfather of concert promoters... Bill Graham's life story may be coming to the big screen. 20th Century Fox bought the rights and has already attached Sean Levy to direct. Love the book. Can't wait to see the movie. I'm all in on this one. Some sad news for our friends across the pond. Brooklyn Bowl London is closing its doors indefinitely. I feel for our friend Jake and for the folks working over at that venue. It's the first time we've seen a chink in the armor of Peter Shapiro. What do you think about this, Dan? I don't think it's a chink so much. Shappy is an amazing guy, and he has an amazing mind. He got Phil Anschutz to write the check to open that venue in London on site at O2. Vegas seems to be having its own struggles, but that's not his money either for the most part, from my understanding. And it seems like the concept and brilliance of his head of the Brooklyn Bulls and Lock-In Festival, not to mention the Grateful Dead 50... He leads the hipsters in the world of where music should be. He'll move on to bigger and better things, and this is just a small stutter step. Fuck it, Jake's already back in the States, and we get to hang out with him when we go to New York next time. On last Wednesday, Irvin Azoff's Global Music Rights announced that it had signed Prince's estate for worldwide representation. This is something Irving had been circling for some time. I even heard rumors that Irving was horse trading service on the recent Prince tribute at Excel Energy Center in St. Paul as a means to kind of warm up the estate the idea of signing with GMR. Ultimately, Irving didn't have anything to do with that event. We have to admire the stories of ambition around Irving's work with GMR and the way he set that up. Dan, what's your take on GMR at this point? I don't know. I really don't want to get into it, but they seem to be gaining speed. But more importantly, is it Irving? I believe you'd have to call him Mr. Azoff. Ahead of Ticketfly's FlyCon next week, 
Pandora announced it's going to cut 7% of its workforce, which is about 100 to 150 jobs, by the end of the first quarter of 2017. The reduction in staff sent the stock higher this week, while the streaming service kind of continues to find its way. I've been a little frustrated watching the failed realization, the integration of TicketFly and Pandora. I hope they sort it out soon. I got to tell you, I'm stoked my buddy Jeff White still has a job, but I listen to Spotify myself. What about you, Luke? I'm not a Pandora guy either. I'm definitely a Spotify guy. I, full disclosure, I am a TicketFly client for our events up in Napa. Love the service and love working with Jeff over there. I just, as a TicketFly client, haven't seen the services that they kind of promised that full stack integration of streaming into ticketing really become the promise that it had when they made that giant acquisition and made our friend Andrew very, very rich. Andrew is already pretty rich. I'm actually really more excited to see what happens with their will call service because I think that's going to be next level when Andrew rolls that out. But I'm still a big fan of that company and all of those guys over there. Mariah Carey is suing her South American concert promoters as she had five shows that didn't come off at the end of 2016, adding to her tremendous end of the year. Special breaking news. We're lucky enough to have Dave Brooks, who's joining us back during his uh, maternity leave. Kristen's due any second, so I really appreciate you uh, popping in today to uh, talk to us about Ringling Brothers. What's going on in your world, Dave? Man, I had the craziest morning. You saw the video on my Facebook page, so... The cops were here. They were responding to like a burglary call, the building next door to me. I hear all this commotion. I stick my head out the door. There's about four cops to my left. They all point their guns at me. I start screaming, man. I jump back into the office and they tell me, put my hands up and come outside. And that's what I did, terrified for a good, you know, 10 seconds. Now, it is... An amazing clip. And I thought the first time I watched it that it was possibly a hoax that you were messing around. But then you watch it the second time and nobody jumps back like that by accident. You put your hands up immediately. So clearly you were freaked out. But it seemed like pretty quickly uh, you guys resolved all that. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, although they did make me crawl on my hands and knees at one point to them, then lay on the ground while they checked me for weapons. And if you watch to the end of the video, the cops actually enter my building with their guns drawn. So it was like some tense moments, you know, but like ultimately it was a false alarm. Well, now that you have gotten to do that, you know exactly what it's like to be a promoter trying to deal with an agent and a manager trying to get an act. <laughs> Uh, I guess I'll stick to uh, journalism then. Well, you're about to be a dad like any second, right? Yeah. Christian, six days overdue. We might induce tomorrow. We were even thinking we were going to induce on Friday. Like, it's happening soon. All right. Well, we're going to let you get back to her. But there's breaking news. The circus, apparently, as you broke this morning on your website, Ringling Brothers and Barnum & Bailey is closing, right? Yeah. They announced it last night, you know, 10 o'clock Eastern, sent out a press release. I mean, it just surprised everybody. And basically what they said was, you know, the show, after 146 years, they're ending it in May. You know, in 2015, you know, they decided to retire the elephants. I mean, there have been animal protests constantly for years. And, you know, city by city, Oakland and Los Angeles were starting to ban the bullhook, which is used to crowd the elephants. And so once that's banned, the circus is looking at, you know, kind of a, a map of North America where the elephants and the bullhorns were banned. In some cities, it wasn't feasible, so they got rid of the elephants. And then if you look at the sales numbers for the last year, I mean, the sales were abysmal 
for the circus. So losing the elephants really was the beginning of the end for Ringling Brothers and Felds just killed it, huh? They definitely coincided at the same time. It's hard to say if one caused the other. But I mean, I'm looking at sales reports on Polestar for Nashville, Pittsburgh, Albany, Cleveland. I mean, year over year, they're down like 50%. I mean, you're talking millions of dollars lost. And the uh, circus is expensive to put on. You know, it travels by train. Think of all the people they have, the animals still. They still have tigers and big cats. I mean, I just don't think it was sustainable anymore. Well, it certainly is a big production, and they roll multiple shows in the arena wherever they go. So that is a large production bill no matter what. And everybody knows that they have the best deal with the popcorn and cotton candy and the merch. It's like nobody cuts a deal like the Feld company does. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, they're, they're selling their own concessions, basically, and at a high markup, you know. I mean, they're, they're taking over the concourse. So I just think it just it was one of those things where when the sales started to drop, they started to drop fast. So you got to wonder, with this happening, Feld Entertainment is monster trucks. They're also the ice capades at Disney on Ice. They've got a couple other Disney products out there. I believe they're now... Sesame Street, if I'm correct, they just picked it up this year, right? Yeah, you know, Sesame Street had been with V Corp for like 35 years, but earlier this year, Vince Egan sold V Corp to a, to a private equity company. They subsequently lost the license for Sesame Street Workshop to Feld. And then sadly, I think we talked about, you know, on your podcast, the founder of V died. So Feld has picked up that show. Obviously, I don't think it's going to be an arena show. Sesame Street's a theater show. But they've also got Monster Jam. They have Marvel Live. They have Disney on Ice. So they've got other properties that they'll try out. They'll probably try a new motorsport property. There's all sorts of different you know things ahead. But this is obviously the company was built on the circus. And this is a big hit for them. Now, you got to wonder if they're going to wind up selling the brand to someone else because it's such a big brand. It is when you think of the circus, it goes together with the brand, the circus, Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey and the circus. It's like Pampers and diapers or Kleenex and tissues. It is the same thing in most people's heads. Yeah, I think there's a lot of value in the Ringling Brothers brand. It is the circus. You know, people don't think of Circus Vargas as a circus. I mean, maybe they'll sell it, but at the same time, you know, if anybody is uh, set up to capture all the licensing and video revenue from the circus, all the historical, all, you know, it's felled. Fellas in the position, they can still make money from licensing the video and video games and the brand. And so I think they'll probably keep it, but it's too early to tell right now. Now, let me just ponder, and this is just guessing and just since I have you, what do you think of Oakview Group, Tim and Irving getting the business with Ringling Brothers? I think that could make the circus cool again. I, hey, that's totally possible. I mean, just guessing that's hypothetical. There's no story or, or news there. I'm just saying, wouldn't that be interesting. Yeah, it would be because at the end of the day, you know, this is a eight to 10 day show for arena. So there is now a gap to fill. Tim and Irving's arena alliance is 22 to 24 venues who now have a hole to fill. So I think that could be a possibility. There's a vacuum that needs to be filled. Excellent. And I think Sesame Street might be a cooler thing now that HBO has gotten involved and that may be a refresh product as well. So now that Feld's gotten into that business, maybe they see what I see and coolness has come back to Sesame Street in a big way. And there's some vintage love there, too, from our generation who are now becoming parents. There's something special about that when you get to take your kid to those shows for the first time. And I think you'll get to experience that in a minute. But there's nothing like taking your daughter to see Sesame Street live because you know Elmo, she's experiencing Elmo, and there's a shared love there. There's something great about that. Hey, you know, check it out, Cookie Monster together. 
I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Anyway, with that in mind, I want to let you get back to Kristen as soon as possible. Thank you so much for uh, running in and talking to us about this breaking news. This is incredible stuff. And wow, what happened with you this morning is amazing. It is amazing, man. If you have an office, get cameras because you never know what you'll catch on film. So we're going to go ahead and share that link on the Facebook page for Promoter 101 so you can check it out. By the way, you should become fans and like the Amplified page as well on Facebook. Well, say thanks for having me on. You know I love the podcast and I love what you guys do. And more importantly, we're so excited for you to become a dad, but we love having you on. I'm excited too. All right, thanks, buddy. So that's it for the news this week, or so much of what we would call the news anyway. Coming up on Promoter 101, the Supermensch, Alice Cooper's manager, Shep Gordon. I'm going to be on Promoter 101. Why don't we take some time to break down Promoter 101 tweets from the past week? This is the part of the podcast where Steiny fills us in on what triggered these posts. When venues send a 31-page contract for a single-night performance. It's amazing how long some of these venue contracts have gotten. I'm not trying to pretend like I'm closing on a house. I just want the place for 24 hours. Maybe actually only 14 hours. Let's just chill out on the legal charging, guys, and do some fucking shows, please. When you see all the festival lineups announcing, and all you can think is there's just not enough money in the world. ton of great festivals announcing right now. Tis the season. And I tend just not to be my cup of tea. Standing in a hot field with drunk millennials. However, there are two exceptions this year. I'm loving the Bottle Rock lineup with Petty and the Foos. Amazing. And Boston Calling outdid themselves with Tool, Mumford & Son, Weezer, Cigarose, and even Chance the Rappers. Mad props to Trevor Solomon on his lineup this year. Really glad we're getting a chance to cover this one this week. When a manager asks you for 90-10 split and then tells you they're looking for you to rebate them 50% of that under the table. Hashtag fuck that. Okay, I felt like I broke the internet with this one, actually. And yes, it really happened. And no, we did not take the deal. But I get a lot of questions asked about, do people ever see the tweets and know it's about them? So this one, the manager called almost immediately and went step by step on explaining why this wasn't shady. But a rule of thumb that my dad once told me, if somebody has to explain why something's not shady, it probably is shady. This week, Dan shot the shit with our very own Works Entertainments, David Britz and Segi Show and David Roberts from Straight No Chaser at their Maui show on January 3rd. All right, so we are in Maui. Just finished up the Straight No Chaser tour, Promoter 101, coming to you with some great guests and some friends, Straight No Chaser's Dave Roberts, Segi Isho, and David Bretz from Works Entertainment. Thanks for being here, guys. Yeah, man. Thanks Happy for having to be us. Here. I mean, we're in Maui, so it's uh, it's pretty good to be here. Captive audience. So you guys have a unique relationship as artists and manager. There's a special relationship there of how you interact, because not only are you friends, but first and foremost, your financial futures are in each other's hands. Well, it's a, it's a fine line. You know, it's it's the same reason why CEOs uh, have a you know respectable distance from their employees. It's you, know, you don't want to get too close where things start to get swept under the rug or skipped over, and then it's okay because hey, we're friends. You know, we'll pal around about it, and it's fine. But you know, we've done a really good job of keeping the professional relationship at the front and center of everything before our friendship. Okay, so you're in a bus with. 10 guys, most of the year, plus crew. So about 15 people on the road, give or take? 15 plus drivers, yeah. Okay, and then from time to time, you're on the bus too, David? You, you go out with them? Yeah. So you guys are living close corridors a good often time of the year. Obviously, you guys as a 
bandmates, you're basically a fraternity on the road. Right. It's all about the hang. You know, I'll just I'll just piggyback off of what Seggy was saying, though. I think some of that has to do with just the quality of characters that we're sitting around the table here with. We met Brits when he was working with another agency, and um, we've been working with him for the eight or nine years now just on a handshake. Yeah, I mean, really, it comes down to who wants to let their friends down. Okay, and I think maybe for some background for our, our listeners, Dave, you're 10 guys in the act, mm-hmm. but you work as the business manager of the group. That's right. And you and Segi together are the business mind when it comes to the smaller decisions that the whole group doesn't need to be in. You guys are the two that quickly do that, right? We're sort of the co-finance team, if you will, yeah. But not everything needs to be 10 decisions when it's the normal business stuff that isn't a huge, life-changing decision. You guys are the guys that speak for the group. Well, nothing would ever get done. I mean, <laughs> 10 people. I mean, it's, yeah, Dave runs the point, and I'm, you know, I'm his assistant, I guess I'll say. Well, say but, check. You're, yeah. you're my, my yeah, check and balance. I'm the second set of eyes. And that's unique. I mean, you guys have had a lawyer in the group and a business manager. There's lots of guys that understand finance and 10 different personalities and 10 different backgrounds. It's a lot of resources just in the group before you get to your management company. Yes, we are a band and we're a touring act and we're doing this, but we weren't trying to do this. This just happened in our lives while we are pursuing other things. If you succeed, I succeed. If the manager is succeeding, the act is succeeding. If the act is succeeding, the manager is succeeding and the promoter is succeeding. You know, it's a And ship. I think we all agree that's most important that the promoter <laughs> succeed. I mean, hey man, if you're killing it, that means we're killing yeah. it. So I hope you're succeeding. We're all on the same ship, right? We're going to sink or swim together. So we got incredibly lucky that we had a video that randomly went viral on YouTube and And that's not just 10 seconds after. After you guys broke up, it was a good 10 years, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. But that's when the work started. You know, it's like, okay, you got this lightning in a bottle. How are you going to deal with it? And I think that's good for two reasons. The, the first being that just our mindset coming into it, we understand a lot of us used to work sort of real jobs, if you will. So we understand that the value of the hard work that's going to really move the needle on what we're doing. And I think, too, to say in my background is that we've been able to apply sort of business metrics to what we do so that we can kind of focus our efforts on where we need to grow and how we need to get there. There's definitely some chemistry involved there. How does that come together? Well, I, you know, I think the interesting thing we, we talked about 2008 and the funny thing is that when these guys came into the office in 2008 there was three four five managers that they had met with before they got to me and it was you know everybody was scared of 10 people they felt like 10 people they have regular jobs how am I going to turn this into a business whereas they came in And I was like, wow, these are 10 dudes that I would be friends with, whether I work with them or not. And when I saw them interact with each other, when I saw them sing, I said, there's something here. And I trusted my gut and spent really 18 months working this project before I made a penny on anything. And you think about, you know, the investment that takes. No one realizes that as a manager, that is a very difficult thing to do because developing acts are the most time intensive. You spend so much time growing and building and starting a business 
that is the most difficult thing to do in entertainment. Everybody wants to take something that is already built and grow it. The most difficult thing is to grow something from the ground up. But I knew that there was something unique and special here. So those first 18 months, you didn't make any money? Not a dollar. Have you made anything <laughs> since? It was outcome. It was outcome. Yeah, it was it was, an income. It was, but, it was you know, and, and, and try sitting down and talking to 10 really smart people and saying, listen, trust me. This thing is going to grow and it is going to get to a place where you are going to completely forget that you had other jobs. Hey, Believe man, listen, I think you should quit your <laughs> six-figure salary at a bank on Wall Street in, in New York to come sing a cappella yeah. full-time. Yeah. And that's Just something you did, right? You left a, a really good career. That's right. Yeah. Well, like Dave said, we were you know, all in that sort of late 20s, early 30s. Yeah, it was a risk, you know, and when I left Wall Street, people were hoping that they weren't getting fired. And I was one of the ones that in 2008, 2009, after the crash, just kind of quit and walked away. I was an anomaly for sure. But, you know, that's the time to take risks. We have a running joke within the group that, you know, we have a list of the worst jobs in the world. Mm -hmm. And number <laughs> one on that list is president of the United States, because that job is, has, has to suck. And number two is straight no chaser tour manager because there's multiple people in the group imagine this, office space but having 10 bosses because we have you know so many guys in the group is that if your ego gets too big there are multiple people in the group that are ready to bring you right back down to earth <laughs> keep you in check well, so and you guys all have a lot of personality in all fairness i know you guys quite well nobody feels that you're celebrities no, no we're definitely certainly not. not celebrities you're on atlantic records and have been for many albums You've been touring the world nonstop now for, what, seven, eight years? Eight years, yeah. And you're moving real records. You guys have a gold record now. Backs don't sell that many records. It's just not historically how it works anymore. It's Definitely not. Nobody not goes diamond. It doesn't happen. Barely anybody goes platinum. But to go gold is a really, really reserved thing now because the music industry has changed. Well, I think the thing that drives our business is us. And, you know, I mean, I know that sounds super egotistical, but what I mean by that is we weren't produced or plucked out of an audition or put together by someone who thinks they know how to put yeah. things together. This is a friendship that started from nothing and eventually turned into this thing. And that's what keeps people coming back to our shows every year is the camaraderie and the banter and... You know, we kind of have that Rat Pack vibe within our group, and our show is so loose and unscripted. Yeah, you guys that, are all crooners, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's we don't take ourselves seriously, and people feel like they're part of our family. And, you know, we sell most of our records on the road, which is insane. But, you know, after every show, we go out and we sign every record that anyone wants to sign. That really gets in the way of us getting to the bar, by the right, way. Right, it really does. I'd it's, love to talk to you guys about that. We could get that first round in a whole I lot of Fans do not take us. it for granted, fortunately, but it does hinder our bar appearances. There's a, a thing that these guys have that you can't teach. You can't say, walk onto a stage and do this special thing where you can have a natural interaction and banner between yourselves where the audience feels like they're a part of what's going on and they're not just watching the show, they're a part of the show. The charisma within the group. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you hear those, those kind of like buzzwords thrown out a lot of times about shows, but you know, I dare anyone to come see this show and say that there is not something that is unique and special about it. We're not fooling the audience, you know, this is, this isn't put on or fake. These are real interactions and real ball busting between us mm -hmm. on stage, mm -hmm. on mic, you know? Real time. If, if yeah. Dave is singing something and he screws it up, 
I'm definitely going to mention it to the audience that Dave screwed up and yeah. make sure that everyone knows and is a part of that hilarity because, you know, it's a live show and that's how we run our show. So it's no well, one you would do full. that if Dave were at 7-Eleven and put the wrong cheese <laughs> exactly. on his crackers because that's just part of your natural. Well, well, why are you putting that cheese on crackers at 7-Eleven? <laughs> that's the point, though, right? Like, <laughs> that's what we do. We bust each other's balls on stage as if we were anywhere, yeah. as if we were all back at Kilroy's. Hanging out in college. Yeah, Kilroy's right. is a place in Indiana. Yes. Okay. In Bloomington, Indiana. Yeah. And that's Maybe something else we should also point Indiana. out is the, the group originally started out as a glee club at the University of Indiana. Indiana University, Dan. Come on, man. Yeah. Fact check, bro. Well, we'll be editing that out, I imagine. Um, so, <laughs> you guys all went to school together. Everybody yes. in the group, whether they're in the, at school at the exact same time or not, not necessarily the question, but everybody was in that glee club. That's right. We were all at IU. We started the group literally just to sing for girls and to hang out and have fun and have so it was a, about getting laid a, a, a little bit a little bit i mean food, anything guys food. do in college is about getting laid let's be honest uh so that's kind of how it started and uh in 96 and then when we started to graduate we started auditioning new guys and left it as a legacy and that's when Segi and tyler and mike um and ryan and and don even all those guys were through sort of the legacy group so does singing bring you girls is that something that you would recommend younger guys that are trying to figure that out does that work well, if you can't Absolutely. play basketball, football, or baseball, or soccer, yes. <laughs> but honestly, you know, that's that's one thing that we notice on the road is we have a lot of choir teachers that, you know, come through the autograph line and after the show, and they're like, thank you for being models for the young boys who are now joining choir, you know, because, you know, you're making it seem cool. And we're just thinking, like, man, when I was in sixth grade, I joined choir because there was 40 women mm -hmm. in the choir and six guys. I'm like, odds are good. I'm joining this thing. At I don't care what it entails. Yeah, I'm, I'm joining this. This and thing. Home Ac, I'm going to get some. <laughs> but I mean, yeah. It's I mean, it, more, yeah, it, was like, it was like eight or nine to one Easily. at least. And, and yeah, it just seemed like the easy way to meet chicks. All right. Well, let's talk about some of the universal things in the business and how that works. When you guys are ready to tour, does David pick up the phone and call you guys as the act and say, let's go to work or do you guys call him and say we've got a new idea we're ready to work at this time frame how does that conversation happen that's an interesting question um the way and again i think we're different than most acts in that we have the ability every fourth quarter to do sort of a, a blowout tour because your christmas yeah, at music have, has been so successful and that's when the sun shines for us so that's when we make hay you know and we do 65 to 70 shows in a 10 to 12 week period in the fourth quarter so we just know that that's going to be when we do our business yeah i mean we've got a schedule at this point and i think that you know one of the things that we're doing is in 17 you know not breaking too much new news is we're going to change that up a little bit and surprise some people in this year which is going to be fun for us and hopefully fun for the audience as well but Generally. Like Alvin and the Chipmunks, is there going to be a ch chaserettes out there? What? No, 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 that's not going to happen. Ooh, let's talk about this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's magic between you guys as far as how you work and where the relationship comes from. David, when you're dealing with them, how much of that is fed from their ideas and you trying to implement versus you pitching them on, this is what I think we should be doing? How does that mix up? Well, I think question. that working with people for 
as long as we've worked together, you start to have a shorthand. So I kind of, you know, without going too deep into things, I know what they're going to like and not going to like. I mean, you know, you know each other well enough after a certain period of time. I have a gut instinct on what they're going to feel and what they're not going to. So I really try and get things to a place where I can present ideas to them and say, hey, listen, I feel really good about this. Um, I think we should do this, this, and this. And they can come back and say, I like this and this, not sure about this. And we kind of take it from there. But I really try and not bring things to them until we're far enough along. Okay, so you manage several other acts. You're in a mid-sized management firm, so you have a bunch of different clients. How much of what you do and how much of your time is devoted to Chaser in particular? 99%. Exactly. In all fairness, with everything yeah, that you work with, they're aware of who it is. There's no conflicts. They know it. And if there was something you were going to sign that you thought was a conflict, that'd be a discussion you guys would have, right? Well, I think they also know that they know where my time and attention is. And I think that with any manager, your goal is to make sure no matter how many acts that you're working with, that the act never feels like they want for anything or that they have to struggle to get your attention or that they don't have enough time with you. I think that, I mean, I don't think we've ever had a conversation where the guys have said, hey, we really don't feel like we see you enough and we don't feel like you spend enough time with us. I don't think that's ever been a conversation that we've in ever had. In fact, it's the opposite. <laughs> well, and in all fairness, you do spend a lot of time on the road. You cover a lot of dates. Yeah, You're saying I'm, you covered about a third of them this year, give or take, right? My take on things is a little bit different. I am very hands-on with pretty much every aspect. I was joking around with another manager a couple weeks ago. The manager said to me, you settle the shows? And I said, yeah. We had an interim tour manager and you know, I was going home and I was settling the shows every night. And people couldn't believe that I would invest that much time in not just being on the road as much as I am, but even when I'm off the road, you know, being available every night to settle the shows. It's a great fail safe too. I cut all the deals. So when it comes to knowing where the bodies are buried, I know. And you in know, the we talked of the deal, how that was cut. Exactly. In the conversation earlier with being in business with 10 really smart guys, if we underperform on any given night, I've got to go to them and say, hey, listen, here's what happened. Here's why it happened. And here's why this date didn't go as expected. You know, when we set a budget for a tour and we create, you know, our revenue projections, I'm estimating what I think we're going to generate for you know, a given tour. And if we underperform in any area, I need to sit down with them and say, hey, listen, here's what happened and here's why and here's how we're going to fix it in the future. And, and I bet there's some people out there thinking to themselves that, oh, budgets are whatever they are and we live and die by the budget. We hold everybody accountable to the budget, even ourselves. If we're looking at something that is in our control, like flights or ground transpo, like we, we're very, very specific with where we spend money. So there's acceptable overtures of margin of error mm -hmm. what isn't acceptable in that world what what's a red flag that you were like this didn't make sense to us somebody has to eat this it just depends on what the budget is um you know we're, we're pretty good anymore I mean, what drives at, you nuts uh what drives us nuts is when our lighting and speaker packages above estimation because we feel like that's a number that we should know pretty well what it is week to week when we come into it and if it's over at the end of the tour we should know why. Yeah, I mean, at this point, after eight years of touring 
aggressively. We've got it down to a really good science, and I think our budgets are almost spot on. So there's not much that pops up that we're like, you know what? This came out of nowhere. This is really pissing us off. You know, the things that happen that are inevitable are, you know, buses breaking down or getting snowed in or things like that that you have zero control over. That's really all that has ever popped up and disrupted us in any way because we've done such a good job of combing through that budget and making sure they're not inflated or deflated to reflect any certain way. So we're we're doing a really good job of dialing in exactly how we need to do it. Okay, and you guys tour is... An evening with there is no opener right is there a reason for that formula we did a year with an opener and what we determined was our audience wants to see straight no chaser they do not want to see an opening act they don't care about an opening act our audience is trained to be there at the start of the show because they know that's when straight no chaser is going to go on and to piggyback on that also not having an opener is methodical you know we're an acapella group if we have a band go out with full instrumentation drums guitars bass everything we're going to look a little less significant coming out just sound wise and we have a fair amount of what we think is comedy in our show. (laughs) So, you know, a natural fit would be a comedian, but I mean, we don't want someone funnier than us going out there and that kills our jokes. Yeah. Then our jokes seem, and you guys have got some pretty funny guys in the act just naturally. I mean, Charlie could almost Charlie be a stand-up great, comedian yeah. on his own. Say yeah. he also does a really great job. But I'll say that I disagree with these two guys a little bit. I think we had a bad experience with the opening act that we tried, but I don't think necessarily that we shouldn't never do it again. Every tour, I think the fans can expect that you're going to be in new suits and a different look, but it's going to be a suit formal kind of look. Well, it's that Rat Pack vibe, right? Like, we want to be sharp. But you're all dressed exactly the same, That's and that's something you work at, Saggy? Yeah, so David, uh, Mike, and I work out, you know, the wardrobe, and it's, I mean, there's so many of us on stage, if we're all wearing different things, it might be a little just jarring, there's a lot going on already with all the choreography, and you know, video, and the video, and the lights, and half the guy's good at choreography, and half the guy's not good at choreography, like, all these things into play, it's like, all right, well, let's be a little more uniform. That way there's a consistency, a through line throughout the show. And with that, there's 10 different personalities in the act. Are there any of them that stand out that are naturally more of the front guys versus guys that are naturally more of the chorus? I mean, I would say we have two guys that handle the majority of the lead singing, you know, Jerome and Mike Luganbill. You know, those guys obviously have just unbelievable voices and they're, you know, Mike's super good looking and (laughs) that helps and he can crush any song and Jerome is an amazing voice and has all the charisma in the world so you know these are our assets like if you want a solo you have to go out there and take it yeah. and mean and to take something away from a couple of guys that are as talented as Jerome and Mike it, you better bring your A game plus some well and i think there's something to be said for that i was in paris and saw don sing take me to church and I had no idea he could sing like that. He took that, so he arranged it, and then he came out there and took it, and the audience agreed with him, and it and became a staple I on mean, the show. I mean, he looked like he sweated two pounds off yeah. singing that song he every night. He did a great job. And it, quite frankly, was my favorite song of that show. He brought he st- it. He stopped the show several times. He got uh, ovations that stopped the show after that. So we were You know, without question, if you're in the group, you can sing. But there's a but difference between you able to sing like that is, is, and then yeah. own it. And, yeah, I... I 
it's clear the difference between if you're going to take over a song for the night, you better own you it. You better own it. But that's that goes into, you know, repertoire to begin with. And, you know, the idea is not to cover songs, but to make them but to own our them. own. And I think that's one of the things that these guys do so well is that you don't hear the original anymore. You hear the straight no chaser version of the song. And I think that's the true testament to being able to really be interpreters of song and these guys can take a song and they can flip it in a way that you forget what the original is well and you guys do that well it's kind of the globe trotters of performing arts where kids are going to be entertained by it because you're going to ham it up a little bit i think the blues brothers medley on the current tour is fun because it's dancing and it's high energy and DR is doing a cartwheel out there, which yeah, I never thought right. I'd see without a ton of alcohol involved. I never involved. thought I'd see either. And a toe touch. <laughs> and a toe touch. But kids and husbands that wouldn't necessarily want to go see the tenors because it's going to be a boring show will go to their wife to see a Straight No Chaser show, and then they'll come back again. So that used to be the case where we used to kind of like, we would see the husbands in the audience, and you could you could see them. You could pick them out at the beginning of the show that didn't want to be there. And by the yeah, end of the, the show, beards, they're right? kind of the into dudes. it. Right? Yeah, exactly. But I felt a lot more this year that in the autograph line, I would ask the couples, I'd be like, oh, so she dragged you here? And the gal would be like, actually, no, the other way around. He really wanted to come see you guys, and I had never heard of you. So we're starting to see that kind of flip a little bit. I think it's because we have that bro vibe. We're a bunch of dudes who are doing something that is historically nerdy and stuffy, but we brought this fraternity vibe to it. You know, we're all super sports fanatics and fantasy football players and all these things that aren't traditionally acapella, you know? I mean, when we were in college at IU, we were kind of known as the acapella bullies because we'd show up at, you know, (laughs) we'd show up at an invitational. This is a true story. (laughs) University of Michigan. We went up there for an invitational and, you know, they had an after party after the thing and we destroyed their keg and we demanded they bought buy another <laughs> and you know someone may or may not have thrown the keg off a balcony but we were those guys the acapella you know? bullies the, the that ride around honolulu on scooters <laughs> but we, we weren't we weren't the up. uh the sport coat khaki guys you know standing there snapping on two and four just being kind of nerdy like we were like all about the hang you know we were out trademark, at the bars trademark. every night we were doing this primarily to meet girls. We did the work when we were in college. We would go knock on sorority doors and try to sing for their dinners. We would chalk sidewalks. We would go into dorms and sing in the cafeterias. We would do all of the groundwork that nine years later when we got asked to sign a record and we were like, all right, well, we know already what we have to do. We have to go put ourselves out there. We have to do anything and everything that anyone will offer to us. If they're going to put us out there, if we're going to sing somewhere, if we're going to do a radio spot, if we're going to do Promoter 101 podcast, we're going to be out there promoting ourselves because that's how we have to get to where we And it's something you guys still do. You guys never turn down an interview, never turn down a radio appearance. Never. I mean, something we say all the time is within the group, you know, nobody's going to care about this more than us. So why shouldn't we be doing all these things? We shouldn't be having other people do these things for us because nobody's going to care as much as we are because this is our lives. So you're still affiliated with the university and there's still a glee club on campus that you're attached to. So when we left the university and started auditioning new members like Segi and Tyler and Mike and Ryan and all those guys, we left the group at the university under the name Straight No Chaser. And then when we got signed to the deal with Atlantic, we were getting a lot of pressure from Brits and 
and from Atlantic both that we needed to yank the name from the undergrad. Just because you had to control your brand. Because we had to control, yeah, we had to control the trademark. We had to control a lot of things. And we fought against that for four years. Yeah. And there were some, So they don't always listen. They don't. We know. We don't always listen. Well, it was, let's call it an extended conversation. It was a pride thing. It was. It was a pride thing. And unfortunately, there were some people out there that were taking advantage of getting the college group just for the name and not paying them for it. Oh, was that a thing that we could have done? Oh, they were marketing <laughs> shows as if it were as, us. Yeah. Shit. So, yeah. yeah, and people and and we that were getting been closed. we were getting complaints from fans saying, saying hey, "Hey, I expected I, should, I was going to see you." The show because it said at SNC Music Twitter, right? And it wasn't us, and so it's people like going were, to see the minor league Cubs play, but and, being advertised as Cubs game. Yeah, in Rifley, if those promoters right? are listening. Shame. <laughs> so we the, that group is now at Indiana under the name Another Round, and we're still very close to those guys. We consider them part of the family and part of the They'll legacy. They'll come out and appear every once in a while when you guys play on yeah, campus, Yeah, right? we've had them open for us in Bloomington, and we've uh, had a few drinks with them after our show there recently at Kilroy's again. Acapella did that. Acapella did that, yep. yeah. Okay, so what's next? You're on a little bit of a hiatus, but you're never stopping, right? So there's things in the works? So uh, what's next is uh, five more nights in Maui, a beachfront property, and we'll use this time to strategize. No, I'm not. I'm kidding. We're going to get drunk and hang out at the beach. <laughs> so a question that we get a lot from fans is, you know, when you're on the road, what are you doing? Are you just hanging laundry? out? A lot of laundry, <laughs> laundry, but it's mostly moving the ball forward. You know, we kind of set the bar really high with our tour every year. It's okay. Now back to the drawing board and we got to beat this. We got to top this. We have to be better. You know, and it's it takes a lot of trial and error to come up with the production ideas and the musical ideas and the, the choreography, all these things that we have to top the year before so people can come back and say... Do you feel there's a bar you have to clear when you go back into a market? It might be the bar that we're just setting for ourselves. I mean, I don't know that the average fan is coming in and saying, I love this show. I would watch it again or I love this show. Show me something better. Or show me something different. The, the fans can count on it's going to be a different show. You're going to get the hits, but you're going to get... They can always count on the fact that we are never going to give them the same thing. What you won't see from this organization is us being lazy or tired. Every year you're going to get something new and something fresh. You know, and I think for us, the juice is in being better every year. Also, I think just to bring this full circle is this all happened out of nothing. We were all working. Jesus some pretty amazing life moments, hanging out with Dave Chappelle. Yes. Or last year, Craig Robinson came to the show. Yep. And I know that those happen every couple of weeks, something random that normal people don't get to do, you do get to do. And that's why we want to keep it going. I mean, you know? again, like we're sitting here doing this podcast overlooking the ocean here in this beautiful spot in Maui. Like, this is not normal. <laughs> we don't we don't take any any of this for granted. Andrea Johnson's your booking agent, and you guys have obviously different connections at Atlantic. How often are you guys talking to them directly or on a conference call with them, or does everything just flow through Brits? I would say probably more than average, but that's because I'm not really sure what the average is. I You're would talking say, to them more than average? Yeah, because we do have that small business vibe to us, and we are always trying to move the ball forward. And so we ask those questions, I think, to our agent because we are running it like a small business. 
business. So. But it's never a situation where we're sidestepping Brits on No, something. and I didn't mean it that, and I don't think you thought yeah. I was, I was yeah. talking yeah. about them. Sides. I'm just curious as part of the normal business, how often are you interacting with those people? Because obviously David's talking to them on a daily basis. I also think it's a testament to the group in the sense that, you know, people like yourself who you're here spending your vacation with us, you know, and you could probably count on one finger the acts that you would actually want to spend a holiday with. Don't edit this part out, by the way. Um, <laughs> Which finger is that going to be? <laughs> you know, the really special thing about this group is that there are a lot of promoters across the country. I'm sorry, we do work with a few other ones. Well, that's okay. I, I, we, you might not know this. We, might, we work with a couple other actors. All right. Unacceptable. <laughs> You've been but, cheating on us? I like to feel like it's an open marriage. Yeah. <laughs> but promoters actually like to come to this show, and they like to spend time with this band. And I have a good relationship with everybody every single promoter that is involved with this band was the same promoter that did the first $500 show we have kept people in our business that took the first shot because no one knew what this was going to become and that is something that I think we all take really great pride in you and I have a story we tell all the time about our first interaction I'll let you tell the story since we do all the talking but that was a real testament in our business and our friendship well and our church story was a two-tier story and quickly I wanted to cancel our first show and pay you in full because I thought it was gonna be embarrassing should have done that <laughs> so I called you up. I called the agent Which first. Which show was that? It was Portland, Oregon oh, at the yeah. Aladdin the first yeah, time at in. The Aladdin. No I doubt. booked two I shows. Yeah. One was the day after Thanksgiving, and that was Seattle, and that was selling great. It sold out eventually. And the other was a month earlier in Portland, an October show, and it wasn't selling. And I called Andrea, and I was like, let's blow this out. It's going to be embarrassing, but I'll pay them in full. I don't want them to play to 10 people. This is ridiculous. And we were literally at like 60 tickets or something. And What's the venue? It was like it, six or Aladdin. 700. Yeah. yeah. So Andrea had gotten me on the phone with you and I was a little no, no, annoyed. No, that's, with... that's not what happened. It was she copied me on an email. Yes, which I was furious about. And I happened to see her that day at a conference and I told her as much. She's like, no, no, David's one of us. It's okay. I was like, Managers aren't and one of we us. Had, we had no relationship right. at this time. Managers are not one of us. This is unacceptable. We had been drinking a little bit too, but we were in Boise. That doesn't sound like you. You were breaking it down. Boise. The fact that I was in Boise is the exception to this rule, which <laughs> ironically, I think the last time I was there, I was with you guys. Yeah, but, probably was. Yeah, so in return, you called me up and said, play the show. I'm going to fly the guys in, and we're going to make sure that we're going to do a ton of media the week before, and we're going to make sure the room is at least half full but it's going to develop into something. Let's do this. And I was like, I think you're making a mistake, but you know, we got a deal and I'll follow through with it. Whatever. What could we lose? And you flew the, all 10 of them in and a road manager did press the week before and we sold like 280 tickets or something. And you actually bonused on the deal. And I was like, all right, you got me. I'm impressed. And then I called you a couple days later and I was like, hey, we're about to announce our next Seattle date. The night of your show is the lighting of the tree in Seattle, and it's a block from the venue. And you're like, the guys are flying in. I don't want to kill their voices. It's extra work. We really need to do this. I'm like, I had faith in you. Have faith in me. This is going to be good. We definitely thought that that was like a mall tree lighting. Yeah. So, (laughs) So just from an artist standpoint, we have a promoter saying, hey, guys, I have a tree lighting at the mall <laughs> tree lighting ceremony you guys need to do this it's gonna kill it's, we were all like, it's a really big deal and we really want you to do it and so we literally all of us in the group are looking at each other like this is going, the biggest okie doke we're going to a mall to sing for a tree like 
come on, man. Like, the show's in an hour. Like, let's just relax. And we walked to the mall. It was like two or three blocks. Very begrudgingly. Yeah, I, I led you guys there with my daughter and wife. And we, First we, time I'd met you guys. Yeah, we hadn't met Steiny really yet. We didn't know. We didn't know. And, you know, and it was kind of a moment where the 10 of us, our egos were a little too big for the moment. And we're like, come on, man. Do we really need to be singing at a mall thing? Like, we're doing, like, these shows. Why are we doing a mall thing? And we get to the mall. They take us up an elevator. We walk out into this balcony. And we see, like, 300,000 people. <laughs> I mean, just it, back. Simulcast on back. four major networks. Think, and introduced by Santa and the mayor. Think Times Square, but in Seattle. Yeah. This is and Seattle, it, right? It was yeah. Seattle, and they yeah. announce the show at the moor going on sale Monday morning. Yeah. And then you guys come out. And as we're walking back... The attitude had very much changed. Oh. Yeah, from what I was told, we were introduced 100%. by the real Santa Claus, yeah. not just like one of those mall yeah. ones. It was, yeah. the it real. was the real deal, Santa Claus. Was, this dude's legit. Like he's not just like yeah. we some started random promoter, like who's saying you know what we want to hear. He's he's killing it. That's my favorite story to tell about you of all time. I love it. was a fun story. day. There's a picture with me and Brits and you guys with Elodie and, and Reese and Reese must have been five or yeah, maybe not even little. yet at that show and it was kind of fun because as time goes on and Reese gets bigger that's fun to go back and look at that picture. Well, it speaks to what you were talking about with the relationships with people outside of our management with you. I mean, we've watched your daughter grow up, you mm -hmm. know, she's, mm -hmm. yeah, she's, she's, got, she's a she's young got 11 adult. uncles. <laughs> yeah, she's a young yeah. adult, you know, it's first of all, stop growing because it makes us yeah. feel old but super old you know we've grown with you and with your family and and with your business too yeah and i absolutely. think that all of the businesses have grown up i think that's what's what's great about all of this you know we've all coming along together your business philosophy just a little bit different than most i would rather give someone an incentive not to fuck me over that is what I feel like is going to grow a successful business. And I think some of those markets that we started with were $1,000 markets the first time in because I get the phone call. It's like, nobody in Norfolk gets it. Do you want it? Nobody wants Miami for some reason. This is the first time in. People just couldn't get the concept of 10 straight men singing a cappella. It was early on. <laughs> some people still don't get still it. Do. A lot of people still don't. And they're not wrong. You know, it's, it's a very acquired taste. No, my bank account proves they're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but there were markets like Miami with some of the biggest PBS stations in the country and nobody was raising their hand and I get the phone call it's like just give us a thousand bucks we'll, we'll worry about the money at the end of the night yeah. and you'd walk out with 20 or 30 grand when we settled the shows but it just didn't matter it was like great let's just let's just get it on sale but I think that has been an, a mentality that has pervaded our business of course we'd love to get as much money as we can on the front end but if we run our business the right way the revenue is going to be there and I think that we don't need to beat up our partners to be successful because we know if we run the business the right way, it's going to work out the way it needs to work out. Excellent. Now, you guys certainly are a great example of business we love being in. With the year of 17 upon us, is there a new album that's possibly coming in the next year? We like to put out records at, uh, at every least every other year, if not more. So if we can possibly squeeze in a new record this year, we will. Yeah, absolutely. But you haven't started one. I mean, well, you, you just put one out. Yeah, we just put we, one out. And you'll be back on the road at some point this year. Yes. yes. Definitely. I have a challenge for you, Steiny. And this is for all promoters and for all marketers and all managers and all artists. Does it require midgets? Uh, maybe. I don't know. I don't know how you plan on uh, fixing this. But so I'm very active in reading our tweets and reading our Facebook wall and comments and stuff. And a lot of times I'll see comments that are like, when are you coming to Dallas? And it's the day after we played Dallas or the day before. 
So what I challenge everyone in this industry is, you know, the majority of the comments that I see is exactly that. When are you coming to this place? When on the banner at the top of the page says the whole tour, or there's a link that says click here for the whole tour. How do we get those people? Well, those, I, those I, I hear this people. from Max a lot, and I think you get it a lot, and then I get the phone call. So here's something that drives promoters nuts, and I think managers too, because they understand we have a limited budget when we're doing shows, and that's in the ballpark of 75 to 15% of the gross is what we spend on marketing, depending on who the act is and how big the market is. So when we're playing a market like Dallas, which is a top 10 market, and we're looking at buying media with a gross that's going to be, let's call it a quarter of a million dollars, the most I can spend marketing is $35,000. So I can only buy so much of any given media to hit such a wide variety of the market to bring in that gross to fill that room. Now, we usually fill those rooms. If we were to spend $100,000, we'd find more people and we could play a bigger room, but there's a diminishing return thing as Absolutely. we spend money. So... Yes, we can't find everyone. It's not like a Trump rally where so much money has been thrown out there to let you know that they're coming. Let's just do Trump rallies. I love this idea. <laughs> well, since this is Promoter 101, why don't you tell us where you, you know, if you're working on a limited budget, where do you go to maximize that return? How do you target the specific media outlets? Well, and we have a special relationship with Works in particular when it comes to this because you have an in-house marketing person, Kyle Novak, who's great at his gig, but Kyle interacts with our office and says, this is what we wanna see, and our marketing people will come back and say, yes, we agree with that completely, or no, this market's a little different, this is what we think, and there'll be a banter back and forth where they come together to a marketing plan, and then agree on how to market the show together, which is how I believe all of your acts actually were, right. David. And we do a couple other of the acts in your stable. So this is a common thing that our marketing team interacts constantly with Kyle. So this process is super, super common. And when you say, or someone says they didn't see a Dallas show, why didn't it happen? It's as much on Kyle's head as it is on my marketing staff's head of why didn't we find this person? It always comes down to, we made money on the show. We sold the show. We just didn't spend wasted money finding people that couldn't have come in anyway. And we got to that diminishing return line. Well, it gets into that perfectionist scenario where we want to do everything perfect. We want to be able to hit every fan who wants to be hit with information. And the reality is we're just not going to be able to do that no matter how much money we spend. We're always going to get folks who weren't tuned in, who missed something. And the goal is to reach those people the next time. And it's what message are we communicating to them when they reach out to us on Twitter? Are we saying, hey, listen, make sure that you sign up for the email list. Make sure that you like the band on Facebook. How can we make sure that we deliver them information in the future so they don't miss it again? And I think that's really what we're talking about doing here is that making sure that folks don't miss it a second time. Right, and part of it is they get the email and they delete it. Because it's a Ticketmaster email, or it's a promotion email, or it's a Straight Note Chaser email, and it's the third one they got this year, and two of them were about albums coming out or possibly a cruise, and this one was about the show. But they didn't pay attention to this one because they read the last two and it didn't say anything about a show. This is why people unsubscribe, or they leave, or they just it went to a spam filter, whatever it is. You know, and that's yeah. a deeper conversation, too, about how you're communicating with your fans. And, and analyzing the data. Yeah, and we've really tried to keep it very personal, you know. When we're drafting email blasts to send to fans, what message are we trying to communicate? 
how can we make sure that they are involved in the process? To add on that, you know, the social media aspect, to engage these people, we can't just always be selling. This isn't Glengarry Glen Ross. This is, you know, you got to find that fine line of, okay, let's tweet this funny photo of us doing something stupid here. And that's, that's great. There has to be content. It can't yeah. be all commercial. No, we want you engaged. We want you to follow us along on the road. We want you to see what we're doing in Maui. We want you to see what we're doing. We want in... you to comment on stuff. Yeah. Like, tell us what you think of this stupid yeah. photo. We Come just along based, for the you know? ride, not just buy this, buy that's what that. we do at the shows too. We want so the any, same thing. Any artists that are listening, like, if, you know, analyze your Twitter account and analyze your social media. If you're just pushing, 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 you may not be seeing your followers grow because of that. You might be losing followers. And I think that's an important thing for Promoter 101 and, you know, managers, promoters, artists, artists everyone can use that information. Yeah. I mean, it's about being in a conversation with your audience. Anyway, I want to thank you guys for coming to Promoter 101 live in Maui. David Britz, Dave Roberts, show. Promoter 101 Maui. Thank you guys. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. A big thank you to David Britz and the Cats from Straight No Chaser for being on Promoter 101. February 1st at 9 p.m. It's the biggest party in Polestar history. Get ready for Let's Drink 5. Live at Exchange LA, 618 South Street in LA. The event of the year during Polestar Live. The event that you cannot miss. Dancing, cocktails, DJs, and more. Let's Drink 5, February 1st. Live at Exchange LA during Polestar Live, 618 South Spring Street. Hosted by Emporium Presents Exchange LA, Access Event Solutions, Nederlander, Ticketfly, Hub International, Works Entertainment, and BYP, Bill Young Productions. RSVP now at Ticketfly.com or RSVP at EmporiumPresents.com. Two of the venue world's who's hooks from the Denver Levitt Pavilion, Chris Zacker, and from the T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas, Nevada, it's Sid Greenfeg coming up next on Promoter 101. Aspen Live, night three. We're here in the suite, and we've got some great friends with us. Dan Steinberg here with Luke Pierce. Good to be back here. So we just finished up our live session with a lot of you have already heard, because, or you must have, because that's already up live. And we're here with Chris Zacker from the Denver Pavilion, or the Levitt Pavilion in Denver. Thanks for having me. And Sid's with us from the beautiful Las Vegas T-Mobile Arena. Thank you for having me. Now, you've uh, gone through a bunch of different arenas in your career. You were at the Forum. And, uh, God, I mean, you just left a trail of dead venues behind you. What's the story with that? <laughs> Not about dead venues. I mean, I think they're, a lot of them are successful. I mean, starting at the uh, Verizon Center in Washington, D.C. Then you've got the BB&T Center in Sunrise, home of You're the like, the shit's Anderson. just too easy now. Like, I have set up the forum. You're good to go. Irving... I'm going to leave you, and I'm going to go help these guys now. No, I didn't go down like that. Listen, the forum was a great experience to open up the venue, but, uh, you know, things happened, and uh, I'm now in Vegas, and uh, it's been great. Besides T-Mobile and still being able to handle an unbelievable historic venue like the Grand Garden Arena and the Mandalay Bay Event Center, I mean, it's a crazy town. I mean, it's there's four arenas there. There's about to be another one that they talk about building, and, you know, we'll see what the outcome is of that as the future comes along. But it's an interesting town. So many things can go on in one night, and they're all successful. So all joking aside, you've got a great history. You've worked with the great Mike Evans. 
So trained by the best, right? I believe so. And you're talking about an arena that has, right off the bat, opens with Guns N' Roses. Uh, it was the Killers first. We did a local show, but it was... Uh, no. Thank the, God for the local yeah. bands, huh, Zink? Seriously, it was the uh, the Killers and Wayne Newton. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, to, I've always thought that they, they should tour together. The Killers know, and Wayne Newton. I didn't know Wayne Newton was still alive. Yeah, he is. It was an unbelievable show. Really, the locals of Las Vegas, the city, everybody kind of came together, embraced everything. It was a really, really great night. And then go right into the uh, Guns N' Roses. It was a crazy week but it was awesome. Let's talk for a second about the Forum and opening that building because it's become a place in LA that is just the cool place to play. Well, it was a place for a long time. It was a place for a long time. But, but, but Irving decided Irving had putting to be cool a lot of money again, in this. so it is. Yes. I mean, listen, it's a historic venue. It has been around since the 60s. I mean, Jack Ken Cook built it when MSG purchased it and then repurposed it. That'd be it. Madison Square Garden that oh, MSG correct. built. Okay. Uh, Madison Square Garden Group, you know, they put a lot of money into getting it back to where it is now and it's a great venue. I think it's the way that they did certain aspects of it with the floor. They've got that whole glass wall area that goes off on the floor you know where the concession stands for you never actually miss the action yeah. you know it's a really good vibe you do six nights of the eagles mixed in with one night of justin timberlake and you turn a market in a venue like los angeles that was doing what 40 50 shows at the staples center and then the forum comes in and i don't know the full numbers but they're doing what 70 80 shows yeah, a year there i mean it's for a venue that has no sports team it's pretty remarkable what they're doing yeah what's that like picking out art with shelly azoff i was not a part of that i was on the uh, booking and uh, business admin side i was not on the operational side of all that. So but, were the cakes um, your decision then? Listen, I've been pretty far. Those are really, really pretty. I got to tell you. They look great. At that venue, they focus a lot on not only the customer experience, but also the artist experience. And I think that a lot of the things that you see is a testament to the work that they do. And putting the thought behind of what they put backstage and how the dressing rooms look to the cakes, to the, the welcoming. LA is not an easy town to just kind of throw up a venue and just handle VIPs. I mean, it's a yeah. VVIP and everybody's a VVIP there. So right. and there's, there's a it's lot not of exactly work. a pop-up setup by yeah. any means. Not at all. You know, the forum club is great for industry. It's become a great place to hang. You know, if you have the option of seeing Drake at Staples or Drake at Forum, which he did both this year on, on the same week, you know, you're definitely hitting up that Forum show. It's just a better place and a better vibe for sure. It's a venue that's got a lot of history. I wish him nothing but the best. But like I said, I mean, it's been now over two years since I've been removed. So, yeah. you know, hey, listen, they do a great job over there. But, you know, as we're all here, my focus is Las Vegas and it's an even crazier town because it really is that town has become the entertainment capital of the world. I mean, everybody around the world comes to this town for anything. I mean, I was, I forgot who I was talking to in the lobby the other day. I mean, I take like one particular date just to like put it in perspective of what Vegas can do in the amount of ticket sales and popularity. I mean, this is like shit that like people's entire city. I mean, the date was April 9th. And the reason why I know this is because I had to do it for another presentation. But in that day, me personally in the arenas, I had Ellie Goulding at the Mandalay Bay Event Center. I had Pacquiao fighting Bradley at the Grand Garden Arena that was live pay-per-view on HBO. And then I had Guns N' Roses at the T-Mobile Arena. Now, also in town, you had Seinfeld at the Coliseum. You had Britney doing her show at the Access Theater. You had a sold-out show at the Hard Rock at the Joint. You had a show at the Brooklyn Bowl, which I can't remember. We also did like I'm our... sure Chris Robinson had to be leading whatever band that um, was. <laughs> we, you know, <laughs> you know, we also had. Uh, I don't you know, know how he headlines all fucking four Brooklyn Bowls in one night, but that fucker's everywhere. But at the same time, then you'd throw in all the other shows like your Mike Tyson's, your Carrot Tops, your all the Cirque shows, all the other stuff that's just standard in Vegas, and that's just one night. Yeah, and you know, there's. So do you put Carrot Top in the same vein as Elton John when you're thinking about shows that compete with you? It's not a competition. It's just, it's noise it in the market. It absolutely is. It's what the noise fuck? In the mar- what it's, industry it's are noise, you in? It's, it's noise in the marketplace and not in a derogatory way of saying noise. There's so much that goes on. The minute you land in Vegas, the electronic billboards can, you know, throw up oh, Right by Baggage Claim. Right. Five different shows. Baggage Claim alone, I mean, the sights and sounds, I mean, between listening to something about the Jersey Boys right into Celine, into Terry Fader, into Blue Man Group, you 
you name it. I mean, it's shit. Even the fucking when you walk through TSA, you have all of the Vegas you know, celebrities yeah. like doing their thing. You guys are both now in markets that weed is legal in. And I think this is going to affect how shows happen long term. I think in Colorado, they're already talking about making a legalized area where you can smoke at Red Rocks. Is that something you're looking at at Levitt in Colorado, Chris? Not yet. I don't think I'm going to be the first person out the gate on doing that. Weed's an interesting topic, especially in Denver. You know, they did just pass this ordinance in the city of Denver called 300, which allows any kind of social use. You can get social use permits. The problem is, is at the same time, the state passed an ordinance that doesn't allow anybody who has a liquor license to also apply for a permit for social use. What you can't see yeah. at home is Rick Hansen from Minneapolis and Jason are totally fucking around with Zacher. And the yeah. fact that he's like making this work is awesome, but I can't see what's going on behind him, but it must be like equivalent to getting Melvin. Like, and he's fucking working right through it. So good for you, man. You so, do public speaking long enough, you learn how to deal with assholes. But let's talk about weed being legal and like how you guys are going to work that into the merch booth in the F&B. You know, I think it's also new. I mean, listen, it just got passed in November. I think there's a lot of things that are going on throughout the state of how it's all going to work, especially in Las Vegas. I mean, listen, you've got the most gambling licenses, probably the biggest thing that's in every property. So obviously there's going to be things that you got to do to but protect But you don't have that. slots in the arena, right? We do not. I mean, the T-Mobile arena, of all the arenas, T-Mobile arena is the only arena that we have that is a standalone arena. I mean, it could be any sporting arena anywhere in the country. I think that though this stance will probably see how the rest of the strip handles marijuana in that. But I mean, listen, at the end of the day, we've all been to shows. We've all been to, you know, when it was legal or not, things happen and fans do what the fans are going to do. Do you look at that from the venue side as more of like an opportunity to create new mixes in that? Or is this just a fucking hassle? I think that it's so new that when you're catering to audiences that vary in age, especially with families and that, you have to think about that. Well, alcohol is socially acceptable, even though the weed's legal, it's not necessarily across the board acceptable for people to smoke weed. I I would agree. I mean, I don't see a dispensary coming into an arena anytime soon. I mean, listen, I think it's still very new. It's very still kind of like people feeling out and figuring out what it's going to be. But I think as time goes on, we'll see. I mean, listen, you don't see arena selling cigarettes either. It's true. Okay. And you work for a fairly well-reputable company. I mean, so the arena is a joint venture between AEG and MGM. MGM is the operator and manager of the facility where AEG is a and responsible on the premium seating and, and partnership side. But again, MGM, a very reputable company in the entertainment space. I mean, we are the leaders in that side in Vegas. So Live Nation and AEG, they both have their strong points. It's hard to say, you know, who does what. I mean, listen, I'm not going to actually answer that one on which I like better or worse because I know that's going to be your follow-up question. we got a great working relationship with them and hope to continue that as we move forward. Let's talk about some of the things on the book. I mean, you pulled up the TMZ website to show me the Ronda Rousey video for the coming up fight on the 30th, right? That is correct. So because the platform of Vegas is so big, the things you have, it's easier to find on the TMZ website than your own fucking website. I mean, listen, let's put the whole New Year's Eve weekend together. I mean, I've got in my venues alone, I've got UFC, I've got Luke Bryant, I've got Maroon 5, I have Bruno Mars. You know, that's just one weekend. But at the arena itself, I mean, we've got, we've been very happy with the support we're getting from the agents, the promoters, uh, managers, people who really want to be in Vegas. We were able to cut an arena residency deal with George Strait. We don't call it residence and exclusive, worldwide exclusive right now. He's going to do anywhere from six to 10 dates a year and only in this Vegas. Is George Strait? Which is that impressive is, too, because the guy retired big. officially two years ago. He retired from touring. He didn't retire from performing. So and I bet did, that marketing was done perfect by Louis Messina when they figured that shit out. You know, they've been great partners of ours on this whole thing and we've been very lucky. I mean, listen, the first day shows went up and been huge successful and George decided to change the show around now so his shows from April through the rest of the year next year will all be his number one hits, which is kind of crazy. Like, he'll do 30 number one hits on a Friday and then another 30 on Saturday. Different 30 I mean, the guy's got fucking 60 number ones. Yeah. That's really 
impressive. Okay, and you call him George. Is that how that works when he's in the room? I mean, when I'm in the room, I just pretty much say hello. But yes, Mr. I, I, I have. I, no, I didn't. No, I've said hello, George. Because he's a down to earth cowboy. I mean, listen, we're you know we all put our pants on one leg at a time. <laughs> <laughs> Vegas has got to be pretty taxing, you know, just both you guys from a video perspective. Like you're constantly on Vegas, especially hosting people coming in for the weekends. You know, every day in your life has got to be something that doesn't stop at five o'clock. I feel like sometimes I live a double life. You know, you seem it, like a secret agent to me. It, it, thank you. Uh, no, it, during the week you got to be disciplined in the town. I mean, you really could let it all go and, and fucking just you know lose your mind. But you know, I guess having a wife and two kids, one of them being a ten month old, you got to have that discipline of knowing that like you have work and you got to come home and, and be a family person. And the weekends it's probably the weirdest. Like I spend my weekends taking my daughter to dance or you know Home Depot, Bed Bath and Beyond. You know, I don't know if we'll have time or shit like that. <laughs> and then all of a sudden at like six thirty, I go take a shower and it's like I, I, I become somebody else. We were talking earlier, and I think that when you're in this industry, it's like that no matter where you are. But you were saying that in Vegas, you've always got friends coming through, and that's the hardest part for you is is separating that piece that we're all able to separate at our house because you've got people that want to party every night, which must be much more difficult. Sid, you've worked with Irving and Shelly Azoff. What's that like? You know, working with Irving, granted, he was on the board. You know, he works in a part of the MSG, Azoff Music Management. But, you know, working with him every day, it's amazing to see how that man works and how he does things. You know, same thing with Shelly. I mean, she is probably the one person I've ever met in my life who has the largest attention to detail on every single thing. And as minute as you may think it is, she picks up on it quickly. They're an unbelievable group. I learned a lot from my brief time with them and how they operate and how they do business and how Irving composes himself in all of the different businesses and, and things that he's a part of. Yeah, it's a pretty remarkable thing in what he does. And it, I mean, the statement that he's making in fighting for value for songwriters as well is, is equally as important. I mean, he's embattled in a lawsuit right now that's going to feasibly cost him a decent seven-figure change against the Radio Musicians Coalition that's going on right now. I mean, it's a pretty bold statement, putting his money where his mouth is in a big way. But you're right. He stands to gain a fair amount from getting people to buy onto him. No, if it works right, it could be huge. And then again, you know, it's like he stood in front of Congress and said that Ticketmaster and Live Nation weren't by any means antitrust and Congress seemed to agree with him well Seth and Arnie stood up there it was actually Jerry but making a pitch that this was absolutely antitrust and as a concert promoter I think it still fucking is but somehow got past the goalie because he's that good in the room yeah 100% I want to give a plug right now to Emporium and Levitt Pavilion because you guys have been working on this thing for a really long time now putting this together. This is not like a, a fly by night thing. How long has this whole process and conversation started? I, I think I, I met Steiny and Sink at Aspen Live three years ago, but it really it was... Yeah, it was Sarah Mertz really yeah. could be credited for yeah. all of this. And if, if anybody at AEG Denver won't hurt anyone in, in retribution, I, I guess it'd be Sarah and Eventbrite that should pay the toll, I would think. Sarah and I were supposed to go to dinner with somebody in Austin and, and he got in a fight with his girlfriend and she said, hey, Steiny's over at the Driscoll. Let's go over and just hang out with Steiny for a minute. And that's how it all started. But it, it's not been like an easy road to you guys opening up a, an amphitheater next summer in Denver. This is, what's the open date? July 14th. I've been working on this for four and a half years. Yeah. So no, it hasn't been an easy road. We're a nonprofit, partnered with the city and I'm sitting here listening to these MGM stories. I'm like, fuck, I'd love to have chairs. <laughs> 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 uh, you're talking about cakes in the lobby and Jason and I are, you know. <laughs> Let's not get the whole thing misconstrued here. I mean, the cakes are in L.A. Okay. Oh, the, yeah, the, shit. The, the, the chairs are in Vegas. It's the gold in Vegas. They sorry. can't afford cakes in Vegas. We, we got it. We you got can't, it. You can't say, afford such luxuries as chairs. I felt so sorry for you, too, when you're talking about like 15 shows on a night in Vegas because nobody goes there. He's got a control and account that deals with it. And in all fairness, he's been working on it for three years. I saw him in March. March and we had drinks and then I called Jason on the way to the airport.
report and was like, this would be cool. You should call Chris. And then they cut a deal and I got to do the press release. So there was a moment where I had a drink with him and I said, that sounds good. We're going to do that. And I called Jason. And I was like, you should talk to that guy. And then I saw a press release this week. But Jason and has, has worked for a long time to make that happen. So it didn't just happen for us, but we jumped in in March and they had been working on it for years. And I think at the end of the day, it was really about, it made sense. We talk about the competition that's in Vegas and the noise in the marketplace. And I mean, Denver is a great city for live music and you guys have an amphitheater that's, you know, the outdoor alternative downtown to Red Rocks, which is a, a place where a lot of people like Vegas want to come through to play that. I would hate to compare us to Red Rocks. I mean, let's be fair. Red Rocks is the greatest dance in the world. Comparison. Yeah, alternative. Yeah. yeah. No, it is. And it's, uh, you know, Levitt, what we're trying to do is increase access to the arts for patrons and for artists. And we're doing 50 free shows a year. And then we needed to figure out a way to pay for those and pay for those through paid shows and through partnerships with guys that are hungry for the market, care about the market and where I'm their first choice and, and we can do some great stuff together. Well, how many shows do you got to do a year? We'll do about 80 total. There's a, a free entity on side of that, which is amazing. And the Lovett Pavilion is attached to the Lovett Foundation, who has a history of doing some amazing things. Not just in Denver, but I mean... They yeah, have, they already have a bunch of different setups for outdoor shows around the country. That We're yeah. the largest provider of free music in the country. And as we, Levitt. The, as Levitt. There's six venues in operation right now. Denver opens next year, and then we've got Dayton, Houston, Sioux Falls, and then there's six more that I can't talk about yet. There's people all over this country. It doesn't matter if you live in a city of 20 million, you live in a city of, of 600 that deserve to have access to the arts. Everyone deserves access to the arts. Being able to bring it to people so you can educate them on what entertainment is and what art is, is what we get to do. Well, congratulations to both of you guys for, for putting that together. I'll give you oh, guys a, a shameless plug in the middle of, of our podcast. Oh, no. Thanks for all. It's interesting to be here because we're at opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah. You're, you're at the top of the world, big glamour, glitz, gold, Vegas, and then you got us that you know we're trying to do is different, yet we're in the same business in the same room, and that's pretty... You're right. We're all in the same business, and it's it, that's one of the amazing things that, that I've found so far since being out in this at Aspen Live is that, I mean, it, it is such a diverse group that all kind of comes together because we all have the same commonality of that we're all in the entertainment business, and all we want to do is make it better. Well, yeah. free show or paid show, we have the same audience. Chris Zacker, Sid Greenfig, thank you so much for taking the time and talking to us. We appreciate it. Hey, this is Charlie from Crescent Ballroom, Stateside Present, and the new Van Buren Theater. I'll be a guest on Promoter 101 when I attend my first Pulsar Live, and hopefully I'm alive to tell you all about it. Joining us on the podcast today is tech guru and early adopter, Scott Perry. Welcome back. We've got on Promoter 101 today, Scott Perry returns to talk about what's going on in the music industry on the tech side. Welcome back, Scott. What's happening, Dan? Excited to uh, learn a little bit about what's going on in that tech world. Teach us, my friend. Teach us. Well, I think the two biggest things more than anything is like, one, everybody's getting back to the CES Consumer Electronics Show and recovering from their hangovers. And it's just absolutely amazing how much Amazon's Alexa dominated the headlines. You know, I mean, I've always known that we're going towards a post-text environment, what with you know, Snapchat and Instagram, but the fact that we're moving so quickly towards voice-enabled activities to where, you know, Alexa devices become the hub for your digital home is shockingly fast. So when you have this device that's highly addictive and learns quite quickly with a lot of apps connected to it, you know, whether you're using Amazon's music streaming service or if you're using a third-party streaming service like Pandora, easy access to your music just by voice control as well as being able to order detergent, whatever's in the kitchen, or in the case of the little girl who decided to have Alexa order her four pounds of sugar cookies and a $160 dollhouse. You know, it's just really amazing how quickly Amazon has glommed to that. 
and how they've really stolen Apple's thunder in such a case because Apple had first mover advantage for Siri. Okay, well, we don't have it yet in the house, but I think it's something we're going to wind up trying in the office next week. Alexis has got to be something that, that we take a look at, huh? Without a doubt. A lot of headlines that are coming out early on this year are how virtual reality is meeting reality. And I get that where it's like being in Los Angeles with the intersection of art and commerce. And so a lot of the old movie guys and TV guys have moved into the virtual reality space. And so they're applying the same techniques that they'd learned with uh, with 3D um, and applying it to VR from a sales and distribution method. But all of the tech press last year were obliviating over like, you know, hyper growth in VR and making these crazy, crazy uh, projections on how much revenue would be brought in from the hardware and software side. When people just didn't look at the actual numbers to realize having a VR headset for your house is fucking expensive. I mean, it's like, so first you've got to get an $800 headset, which is usually tethered to a processor. And then your processor normally costs about $1,200 just to create a good experience. You're at two grand already. Do you need to spend more just to make this happen? (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, there are ways around it. I mean, you do have like the mobile headsets where you slide in the phone. You do have Xbox VR, which is just another add-on cost on top of Uh, what you've already paid for your Xbox. And, you know, there is a lot of developments coming to where VR experiences can be rendered via regular computers because, you know, your computer that you're using right now cannot properly render these environments that are amazing once you're immersed in them. I mean, there are a lot of studios down here banking on VR in a big way, and they're very well funded, but it's just not quite ready for the consumer yet. And even if you have a VR experience on your mobile phone, a typical VR experience will take up between three and five gigabytes of space on your phone and if like me your phone is filled with pictures and video and whatever else porn you might not have a whole lot of room to add and subtract and you know, keep on adding these VR experiences let's go back for a second because you taught me several years ago that porn is really the tech side of things that usually pays to engineer and pave the way in a lot of these new technologies, right? Well, I mean, that's pretty much, that's no secret. That's common knowledge. Right, but is this going to be a thing with VR? Can you masturbate in VR? I'm sure you can. I've read articles about, like, studios being set up in uh, Japan yeah, for such experiences. Yeah, I bet you read for the articles. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. And I've got some friends in the VR porn space. So it is there. It's totally there, you know? And from what I read in the articles, because I did not go to CES this year. I mean, CES, Consumer Electronics Show in Vegas, is a zoo. And unless you have a company paying your way to be there, unless you have an actual reason to be there for business development and client relations and all that other stuff, it's just such an expensive way to start out the year. You know, and I have lots of friends who are there, had a great time, but I did read articles about how porn is coming back into CES via VR because there is a time when Consumer Electronics Show and the Adult Video News Conference were both in Vegas at the same time. And I think Adult Video News has been pushed back a few weeks or a couple months just because CES has grown into such a monster that it like flows out beyond the walls of the convention center and into adjoining hotels to where you have separate segments, not unlike South by Southwest, where South by has gotten so big for itself that, you know, not only do you have South by at the convention center, but then you also have it at the Hilton and the Marriott and the JW and all these other places around the Driscoll, you know, for separate channels, whether it's sports, advertising, marketing, and then yeah, it's, it's insane. But now, Refresh my memory, you've got a little world tour coming up, right? We're going to be all over the place. I'm excited about that. And actually, the VR guys were in Aspen this year at Aspen Live, and they had us doing designs and things, and we got to like walk into the designs that we made in the air. It was 
pretty freaky. I, I thought it was really cool. No, VR itself is a fascinating technology and it's wonderful. Like, I mean, you know, to go through Guitar Hero or some of these music playing experiences in VR are amazing. Tilt Brush, such an incredible device where you are rendering 3D paintings around you. I mean, right. That's what I was doing. That was awesome. It's like, it's expensive, but at some point it's got to get to the point where you can actually get this for your daughter and she'll have a blast in that space. I could see playing Rockstar on that being pretty fucking cool. It is, it is. And you know, a lot of the major labels out there are committing to VR as a new channel, as well they should. But it's just, I think the projections for VR got to be a little bit ahead of themselves. And I do think VR will die before it really grows because it's like, okay, so in the big picture, VR is such a tiny percentage of all entertainment experiences altogether. So this dip that's to be expected in VR is such a minute blip in the overall picture. But what happens is the people that work at these studios that don't continue to get funding, that don't continue to get paid projects from brands will be able to take their experiences to larger, more well-funded companies, whether it's Google, Microsoft, Amazon, uh, who I hear are building studios down here as well. So VR will have its day at some point. It's just I think all the tech people just got a little bit ahead of themselves on it. I've got lots of friends in the space. I think it's a wonderful place to be and a, a very high growth area. But for right now, it's like you really have to measure the number of installed devices, the cost of the experience, and what's your return on that investment for that experience. Because I know as a manager, as a venue, as an artist, you're looking for new ways to express your art and make money doing it. But you know, the bloom is off the rose, and so a lot of the brands that were commissioning these studios to build VR experiences realized that they wouldn't get a lot of actual uses, but they'd get headlines in Ad Week and Ad Age and win awards and stuff like that. But when that turns into a tired subject in the press and you have to rely on actual revenue, then that's where it gets really difficult. I have no doubt that VR will be successful one day. It's just right now the hype is a little bit ahead of itself. Okay, so let's go back to you saying that major labels are supporting this. I didn't realize there were still any in the business. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, I've yet to talk in deep detail with Ty Roberts, who has a lot of digital initiatives over at Universal. I mean, Ty had come over from Grace Note in this past year. Very smart guy, decades of experience in the business, very enthusiastic about VR, and he's got some great partners lined up. So I don't know the full details on what exactly plans are for companies like Universal, but you know, these are the things we have to do to continue to grow the business. And these are the things that content companies, you know, specifically Universal, would have to do to continue to make money in new ways, you know, because streaming revenue is minuscule. You know, I mean, of course we'll never go back to the days of like a $20 CD for a single, but you know, it takes a lot of spins to get some significant revenue off of streaming anything. So as an independent artist, it's harder to make money. It's harder to justify your recording costs. But, you know, for a major label who can mine their catalog over and over and over again, you know, streaming will provide a huge chunk of change as if it isn't already. In fact, I've even talked to a guy a couple of weeks ago who runs a, uh, a content farm in Pakistan where basically they're working with labels right now to create brand new music videos for their entire catalogs based on still images and text for a mere $50 to $200 per video based on the number of videos that are being made. So once you get an entire artist catalog onto YouTube and have access to that music anytime, you know, your content cost was only $200. Your hosting is nil because YouTube is eating that cost. And you've provided 
that old content a new means to be discovered and consumed by younger generations with no returns, no breakage. You know, it's all gravy. It's crazy how much money like stands to be made from streaming in the coming years. But this is no secret. I mean, everybody that's in any position to talk about it has been talking about it for years. It's just now that we're at a time where CD sales are gone. Album sales are up. Single sales and download sales are down, but streaming is becoming, obviously, the main means of consumption. Yeah, actually, on the episode that just played last week, Luke talked about that the only format of the industry that seemed to be up for retail was vinyl, which was up considerably. Killing it, dude. Indie retail is having a heyday with this. I mean, you know, when I was working with the Coalition of Independent Music Stores in a time when the big box retailers dominated the retail industry, the, the indie stores always booked themselves as the last store standing. It's like, all right, you know what? You can keep on throwing your slotting fees and your rebates to your best buys and targets of the world. But when the time comes and CD sales slow down, those big chains are going to turn your back on you and we're going to be the only people there. And it's proven to be true and because of efforts like Record Store Day, you know, vinyl's faced a resurgence. You know, it's like vinyl sales are up, vinyl player sales are up. So whether these kids are just collecting the vinyl and looking at it sealed, or if they're actually listening to it and playing it, you know, with a download card or you know, on its own, remains to be seen. But yeah, vinyl sales have been a bright spot. And the good thing is uh, it's provided a great revenue source for the indie retailers because they can get this old vinyl for a couple bucks. And the markup is 100% or 200%. Whereas in the old days, if they were buying CDs from the distributors or the one-stops, their markup would be, they'd be lucky to get 10% or 14% and then have revolving credit and have to return product to get more product and all this other stuff. So vinyls provided a beautiful runway for those indie stores that are still there. They're stronger than ever now, which is a great irony that in a digital age, that these analog retailers are just killing it right now. I love the reality difference between Alexa being where you started and winding up back at vinyl and analog retail. It seems like everybody's finding a way to, to survive in the space and continue to bring in revenue. Totally, you know, and it's like for as digitally savvy as I feel myself to be, I'm deeply immersed into the analog space. Like, I'm never going to spend thirty-five, dollars $80,000 on a Tesla. I may never get an electronic car, just because I know my phone already tracks my every movement. I don't know if I want my car to do that as well. I don't know if I want it to be hacked. I don't know if I want it to be able to be throttled by law enforcement because I'm going over 55 miles an hour, you know, which in 20 years, you know, of cars are going to be self-driving anyway, but you're not going to be allowed to speed. Let me ask you about this. I mean, just because you're an early adopter, you probably have an idea. I never thought they could digitize drugs, but with vaping, weed has certainly gone that way. Is there going to be a point where they digitize a way to do synthetic version of cocaine or any other heroin or something like that where they figure out how to make it legal by doing it digitally? I don't know about digitally. I mean, that I mean, that's some microbiological stuff that's far beyond my understanding. I mean, we all know there are bath salts out there that mimic a lot of the uh, effects of other drugs out there, but because of their chemical compound are, quote, legal. But, I mean, stuff like that scares the hell out of me. Cool. Well, we'd never ask any of our listeners to do anything that wasn't legal. But <laughs> right. If anybody out there has any idea if this is coming in one way or another, it, it's certainly interesting. Oh, yeah. And another thing to bring up, and it's a, a nice little welcome Christmas surprise that I had over the holiday season, is this little book I wrote, Snapchat 101, as a means to help adults learn how to use Snapchat. Yeah, so uh, Snapchat grows buzz around their spectacles, those little like glasses that record 10-second videos. As uh, Snapchat marches towards their IPO, the buzz is growing, and so there's a lot more adults that are interested in using it, especially when they're trying to figure out just what the heck their kids are doing on their phone behind their back. 
So this little book that I wrote over the summer, you know, Snapchat 101, available on Amazon, self-promotion here, 499 Kindle version. Great. We'll, we'll get a link and put that up on the Facebook page too, so people can get to it easily. Hey, I want to thank you once again for taking the time. We covered everything from VR, porn, into Snapchat, into record business, and going analog. I think we got a good amount fit into this couple of minutes, and I always appreciate your time. Well, thank you, Dan. I appreciate it. You have a wonderful week. Hey, this is Wayne Forte from Entourage Talent in New York, and I'll be a guest on Promoter 101 at Polestar Live. Come on down and see us. That's it for Promoter 101 this week. I want to give a shout-out to our friend Ollie Rosenblatt from Simba Live. He's mounting his first West End production this week in London. Promises, promises. Opens up at the Suffolk Theater. Some big props and congrats to Ollie. Promoter 101's live podcast tour continues. It's coming up February 2nd. We're going to be recording Promoter 101 at Polestar Live with special guests, Stateside Presents Charlie Levy and Entourage Talents Wayne Forte. Be sure to register for Polestar today at polestar.live. And there'll be some special after-hour podcast recordings in the suite that night. So if you catch up with me or Luke, we'll give you the details for that around the bar. And don't forget to RSVP for Let's Drink 5, which is February 2nd, Exchange LA, with all of our great partners, Hub International, Access Event Solutions, Ticketfly, Nederlander, Works Entertainment Emporium, and a special shout out to Bill Young Productions for designing that amazing TV spot that's floating around the internet right now. March 9th, God Save the Queen, we're coming across the pond. We're going to be at ILMC at the Royal Garden Hotel in London. Sign up for ILMC29 at ILMC.com. On March 16th, Dan's going to be interviewing APA's head of music, Steve Martin, during South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. Come slug some Schinerbach and eat some barbecue at the live music capital of the world. Get your South by badge at SXSW.com. April 19th, we'll be doing a taping during Canadian Music Week featuring an interview with UTA's Jack Ross and just added Golden Voice's Elliot Lefkin will join the interview as well. Excited about that one. Next week, we are joined by Supermensch manager Alice Cooper's Shep Gordon. Very, very excited for your interview with Shep and Maui. Jealous you got to spend some time with them. Looking forward to sharing that interview. Should be fun. And as, as I've already heard it because I was there, I can guarantee it will be. Hey, congrats to Sturgill Simpson for killing it on Saturday Night Live this week. It's uh, Friday night when we're recording it. That episode definitely hasn't aired yet. Yeah, but by the time the podcast airs, it will have, and he will have killed it. I'm sure he will. If you have thoughts about the podcast or want us to interview somebody, we want to hear about it. Send us an email with your ideas to steiny at promoter101.net. And you can follow Luke at WLukePierce or me at the Jew on Twitter. And be sure to subscribe to Promoter 101 wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're digging the podcast, drop us a review. We want to know what you think. I'm Dan Steinberg, and for Mr. 100% Luke Pierce, we're out of here. Hi, I'm Jake Gold, and uh, you're on Promoter 101.